Dr. Elaine Ostrander appeared on 60 Minutes on November 27th of last year with Anderson Cooper to talk about canines and the similarities that they have to humans in many ways, including ones that involve cancer. On today's podcast, Dr. Ostrander will discuss her 18-year career at the National Institute of Health, which led her to starting the Canine Genome Project. Some of the fascinating information that Dr. Ostrander will share includes the fact that canines and humans share many of the same type of cancers, that treatment for these cancers are the same, and both species undergo clinical trials, which can help both humans and dogs, including a clinical trial that was first used on a golden retriever who had osteosarcoma, and then on an 11-year-old girl, which found some success for both. Even though this podcast diverts from the all-important subject of pediatric cancer, I thought it was a fascinating look as so many people have a man's best friend as an important member of their family. I hope that you will enjoy this podcast. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Elaine Ostrander to my audience and welcome her to my podcast. Thank you very much for joining me, and it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm certainly looking forward to chatting with you and your listeners today. Well, you've got a fascinating subject to uh, to talk about. And normally, my podcasts uh, are on focus uh, on pediatric cancer. Although this one is not going to, um, because my guest is an expert on man's best friend, which of course are dogs, and that humans and dogs do have a lo- do have a lot in common when it comes to the subject of cancer. My first question to you will be: When did you first become aware that humans and dogs shared many of the same traits uh, that can make up a cancer profile? Um, You know, my first faculty position was at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center uh, in Seattle. And so literally everyone in the building was working on some aspect of cancer. Um, And there was also a very strong clinical component in, in the department that I was in. And so I kept hearing about cancers, you know, lymphomas and osteosarcomas and, you know, gliomas and, and bladder cancers and so on from my colleagues down the hall and and floors up, floors down. Um, But then as I was building a map to navigate the canine genome, owners were calling me and saying, so, um, hey, you know, my dog has bladder cancer. My dog has lymphoma. My dog has osteosarcoma. Can you find those genes? Can you help my breed? And, And it became clear very, very quickly that what we learned in dogs could be beneficial to humans and what we learned from humans would be beneficial to man's best friend as well. And you've certainly taken it to the next level and the the level after that. Now your educational background took you from receiving your bachelor's degree from university of Washington, your PhD from Oregon state and your postdoctoral education took you to Harvard and then you Cal Berkeley when did your professional interest in genomics 
take place? And was that done while you were in uh, in school and and uh, in your postdoctoral uh, work after that? So as a graduate student and in my postdoc um, at Harvard, I worked on DNA structure. So things like what's the minor groove dimensions of, of DNA. So that's really nitty gritty sorts of things. But in the process, I got to do things like clone DNA. And so there was this sort of growing realization that, hey, um, the field of genetics, genomics is really expanding. And I got to kind of keep my eye on that. And then when I went to Berkeley, a number of things happened at the same time. Um, there were a couple papers published in the American Journal of Human Genetics that made it abundantly clear that you can make maps to navigate the genome of really any mammal. So we weren't relegated to thinking about humans and mouse and and rats and, and then maybe flies and worms when, when we thought about those model systems, but everything was now fair game. So any trait you thought was interesting in dogs and cats and elephants and tigers and whatever, um, you could build a map that would allow you to move up and down those chromosomes, much as a map allows you to move around a city um, or around a building. Um, and that to me was a, a big moment because suddenly the whole world of biology was wide open to me. I didn't have to think of narrowly about, oh, I'm going to study just flies or worms or this this or that model system. And then the the human genome project, which was you know expanding and happening at the same time, it became clear that that technology and the bioinformatics was was happening in a way that was very universal that we could take advances the human genome project. And again, we could apply them to any mammalian system we really wanted to. So while at Berkeley was when the dog genome project per se was born, and the original motivation was to identify genes for breed behaviors. Why do herding dogs herd? And why do draft dogs pull? And why do pointers point? And how do hunting dogs help us? But as soon as I moved to the Hutchison Cancer Center, it became clear that it was so important to understand disease. Um, it was uh, a huge genetic risk factor for many breeds, particularly cancer. Um, and of course, we know that cancer strikes um, so, so many humans. And so bringing those things together then just sort of became a, a singular focus. And going at it from very different angles at different points in, in my career has been a really exciting way to go. But I think it was 1990, 1993, um, the lens really cleared on all these things. You've been at this now for 30 years. And I'd like to read you a quote um, that I believe is from you, saying that dogs live in our world, get the same diseases, are exposed to the same pollutants, have the same genes and the same mutations in these genes that make them susceptible to everything that we are susceptible to. My question is, was that a surprise to you when the deeper that you got into it, how uh, much we have in common with the canines? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we know from studies of other mammalian systems that, that mammals, by and large, um, have the same smorgasbord of, of genes, and they may 
not be in quite the same order or their genome may be divided into more or less chromosomes. Um, but as mammals, we all really need the same things to, to grow and to survive and to accomplish whatever tasks we had to accomplish. What surprised me was the similarity between cancer and dogs and cancer in humans. And so as I started talking to veterinary oncologists, they would say, well, you know, um, you know, bladder cancer in humans and bladder cancer in dogs, gosh, the pathology is the same. Um, the histology is the same. They respond to the same drugs. The pattern of metastases is the same. And that wasn't a one-off. That was true for cancer after cancer after cancer. And as we started to understand that it was many of the same genetic pathways, and in some cases, the same genes and mutations, I honestly didn't expect that at first. But then when I took a step back and I thought about it, it kind of made sense, really, um, because many of the genes that are important in canine and human cancers are things that are important overall in growth regulation. And cancer is a disease of growth gone awry. Right. I mean, cells are dividing wildly. They aren't following the accepted rules and regulations they're supposed to be following. Um, and, and so you get a tumor or a huge proliferation. And so given that growth regulation was the same vocabulary of genes, it sort of made sense that the cancer would be as well. So over time, I've come to accept it as, oh, yeah, of course. Um, but then when I look back early on, um, each finding was a surprise. Each one was really, that's the same story. Who knew? Um, I think one of the ways in which veterinary oncology has really grown has been in terms of, of pathology. And the more we know about the nature of a tumor, um, the the more we understand or expect it to behave similarly in humans as what we see in dogs. Now, in order to identify the many similarities that us humans and the canine community have, you obviously had to uh, do the proper research and you started the Canine uh, Genome Project, which is uh, you've already mentioned. Can you talk about the, that overall project? What did you need to do to get it started and what type of data uh, did you look for then? And is it the same data you're looking for now? Oh, my favorite topic, the Canine Genome Project, mm -hmm. um, and it's many tentacles. So when I first started the, the Dog Genome Project, I had to make a map that would allow us to navigate the canine genome. And the map had to be something that you could refine and make better and better. So you have a map of the country, you have a map of a state, you have a map of a city, you know, you, you have a map of a neighborhood, you have a map of a building. And that's really what, what my lab was doing um, in the dog genome was, was building those maps. And partly we needed it um, to, to try and find genes that make this or that breed susceptible to particular cancers but the community needed it. There's a whole community of people studying everything you can imagine, whether, you know, it's diabetes or neuromuscular disease or, you know, all the same diseases we get as humans. For most of those, there's a, a dog counterpart as well. So we really felt it was our responsibility to build these resources and get them out into the community um, so that everybody could use them for whatever questions that they were tackling. Over time, we see our mission as having evolved. 
So initially, we wanted to get enough data and show enough success that the dog genome would be sequenced. And in 2005, the genome of a boxer was sequenced. So every base pair in its order, um, you know, was aligned in in a first attempt. Since then, we've really understood that every breed has its own history. Every breed um, has its own story. And so we've set about sequencing as many different breeds um, as we possibly can. So we we currently have, oh, I'd say about 4,000 genomes um, or 4,000 dogs have had their genomes completely sequenced. And that provides a tremendous reference to everybody in the community So if I'm studying a group of dogs or a breed at high risk for osteosarcoma or leukemia, um, there's now reference genome sequences from unaffected dogs that I can compare that to. And that's been really important. Um, And then the other thing we've seen as uh, part of our mission is understanding how all the different dog breeds relate one to another. You know, every breed club has its story. Every owner has a story. Every breeder has a story. Oh, you know, my breed came from, you know, Norway and, you know, this many hundred years ago and was crossed with this and selected for that and so on and so forth. But we wanted the DNA to tell us the story. Um, And that's been a big part of, of what my lab has been doing was figuring out what's important in domestication, what's important as breeds were were separated and were developed, what were the things that were selected for. Um, that's um, been a big part of, of what we're focused on and doing now and mapping things. You know, we're focused on morphology, we're focused on cancer, we're focused on lots of things. Now, before you got involved with the Canine uh, uh, Genome Project, was there any other significant research being done on this topic or are you pretty much the first person to get seriously involved in this? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. So I would say some of the best research was being done by people who were studying wild canids. And people were studying it from the viewpoint of conservation. And others were studying it from the viewpoint of domestication. So remember that dogs were only domesticated about 20,000 years ago, which is a really short period of time. And most breeds have only been around for a couple hundred years. And so thinking about those events and understanding how even crude DNA information um, could help understand that was certainly ongoing when I started. And and those scientists have continued to um, have their, their groups grow and they continue to address those questions in interesting and clever ways. So I'd say that was ongoing. But I think the most important thing that happened is that veterinarians and owners <laughs> um, laid the foundation for us because in people's freezers, in, in veterinarians all over the world, there were freezers of blood samples that they had stored from interesting cases that came in. And then they, you know, talked to the breeders, you know, is there is there another dog in the family that has that same disease? Well, let me see the medical records. Let me make a Xerox <laughs> of the medical records for, for those who are familiar with Xerox still. And so once we threw the doors open and said, hey, our community wants to find disease genes. We want to help dogs. We want to help humans. Um, all these, all of these DNA samples and histories and pathologies and histologies came forward um, that we didn't even know about. And, you know, some of these were people who were mainly human geneticists. 
but they, you know, had a neighbor who has dog had an interesting disease and they followed it up and put it in the freezer. Some cases 20, 30 years ago. And so it's really because the general public was curious and dogs are members of their family, sometimes the most important member of their family, um, that we were able to move forward so quickly. We really, really, really relied on people and we relied on those visionary, visionary veterinarians who threw those things at the bottom of their freezer 10, 20, 30 years earlier. Really quite amazing. Now, you say that it's easier to study genes in dogs than in humans because of some of the dog-specific traits. Can you talk about those traits? Sure. So um, half of my lab for most of my career has worked in human genetics and breast and prostate cancer. So I speak with some firsthand knowledge um, in, in this regard. So there's really a couple things that help in cancer studies. Um, one is that, remember, many human cancers occur late in life. So think about things like prostate cancer, breast cancer, any leukemias, lymphomas, I mean, you know, set aside leukemias, but certainly many other cancers are, are really diseases of later age. And so if you want to find susceptibility genes or, or DNA variants, you kind of have a one generation shot, right? You're not going to necessarily be able to collect two or three or four or five generations of, of affected individuals or of a family. In dogs, lifespan is really compressed. And so it's not difficult often for us to get two, three, four generations of dogs who are at high risk for a particular cancer. And so that gives us a lot more statistical power, for sure. The other thing is breed structure. Breed structure is so helpful because every breed is different from every other breed. And now that we know how they relate one to another, we can design our experiments in really clever ways. And so let's say we're working on bladder cancer. If you're a Scottish Terrier, um, your chances of getting bladder cancer are 22-fold higher than the average mutt walking down the street or mixed-breed dog walking down the street. 22-fold higher. Scottish Terriers. Well, West Highland White Terriers are also at high risk. So we can collect from both of those breeds and we can combine the data and we can get a lot more power. And you know, all the Scottish Terriers are going to have very similar genetic backgrounds. All the West Highland White Terriers are going to have very similar genetic backgrounds. And so it just makes the whole process easier and requires many fewer samples. Humans, that's not true, right? You can go out into the United States and, you know, you can sample thousands of people and, and you're going to find hundreds of different genetic backgrounds and histories. Um, and that breed structure component is absent, right? So study a complex disease like epilepsy. Well, different kinds and different dog breeds, um, some breeds at high risk, some breeds at low risk. You, you can really build a, a very nice experiment um, knowing that there's lots of epilepsy genes out there. Well, in humans, it's much harder. There could be a hundred epilepsy genes, but people don't come with a label. Oh, you know, group one over here, we're going to be this kind, group two, yeah, we're going to be this group of genes, group three, we're going to be this group of genes. People don't come with those kind of labels. Um, and so dogs do. Um, and we can often get five generation pedigrees on any single individual, any single purebred dog. And so that just makes the whole statistical process so, so, so much easier for us. So those are the two advantages we rely on a lot um, to make rapid progress. Now, you 
sort of to add on to that question, uh, we've already talked about, or you've already talked about the fact that both humans and dogs are diagnosed with many of the same forms of cancer, lymphoma, melanoma, brain cancer, breast cancer. Um, is it normally easier to diagnose cancer in dogs as opposed to humans? Or does it depend on uh, other factors yeah. that really don't? Um, you know, uh, so a little bit of a wishy-washy answer here. So in in some cases where there's a huge breed specificity, the veterinarian knows what to look for. So one in four Bernie's mountain dogs will get histiocytic sarcoma. It's a terrible disease. Every dog who gets it will die of it. It's lethal. There are related cancers that that um, occur in children. They're very, very rare. They're not good cancers. So if you have a Bernese Mountain dog, your veterinarian's kind of always on the lookout and feeling for those odd lumps or or bumps. Um, if you're a Scottish Terrier, your veterinarian is on the lookout for signs and symptoms for for bladder cancer. Um, so often. Um, if you know the breed or the multiple breeds that made up your dog, the veterinarian is really on top of looking for those signs and symptoms and carrying out those diagnostic tests. Um, I think, I think overall, it's it's the one thing that makes it harder in dogs is we don't have the super sophistication necessarily of diagnostic tools. And to the degree we do, just like in, in human um, testing, um, they're expensive. And remember, pet health insurance is not really a thing here in the United States. It exists, um, but most people don't have it. In some places in Europe, it's actually much more common. And so that's a factor people have to, to take into consideration when they think about the range of diagnostic tests and treatments that would be available for their dog, but you know, this, this is going to be a big deal for them. So every dog owner I've ever talked to wants to do the absolute very best for their dog that they, they possibly can. And so one thing dog owners are, is really vigilant. I mean, their dog gets any weird little lump or bump or funky this or little bit of a limp here, whatever, they're at the vets. And of course, we as humans are very happy to ignore um, our little health problems and quirks and our lumps and, and bumps. And so um, that's one of the things that makes it easier. And so it kind of goes, it goes back and forth. I think dog owners would be equally split um, on answering that question. Now, dogs are enrolled in clinical trials just as yeah. we are. And these trials are at least partially funded by the White House Cancer moonshot initiative now what doctors learn from these trials can be shared between the canine community and the uh, human community this concept is called comparative oncology can you talk about that sure um so there are lots of clinical trials ongoing for either drugs we have some knowledge of from human medicine might be useful in dogs um, or even you know very relatively new things that haven't been fully explored in, in human medicine and the idea in comparative oncology um, is a communication between veterinary oncology and, and human oncologists and the information that we get from clinical trials um, in dogs well, okay, 
well, what are human oncologists then going to do with that information? Are they going to use different drugs? Can they try different dosages? Can they try different combinations of drugs um, that did work or were successful in dogs? And ditto for for the reverse. You know, um, veterinary oncologists are always looking at what's coming out from human studies. Okay, what are the new drugs? What are the dosages that work? What are the drug combinations that are successful, which have terrible side effects, which don't? Okay, what's reasonable to try in dogs with this cancer or that cancer or this particular breed? Because it's a very big breed or this particular breed because it's a very small breed. And so it's really about dialoguing and communication. Um, and very open dialoguing. And and very often a canine clinical trial will have human oncologists involved in it for, for sure. Um, there's excitement and enthusiasm on both sides for um, these kinds of studies. And osteosarcoma, as you know, is a place where there's been tremendous success in part because all the people doing clinical trials in the veterinary world have formed their own network um, and are really good at communicating with each other. So they're not just replicating the same trial and error things over and over. They're really functioning as a community uh, across the U.S. and other places in the world. And so that really expedites um, drawing conclusions, getting knowledge, and then communicating that um, to human oncologists who are treating their human patients with osteosarcoma. Well, I just want to uh, kind of expand on the osteosarcoma situation. Now, I was doing some research. There were 75 million dogs, I believe, in the United States. Four million of them each year uh, are diagnosed with some form of cancer. 10,000 of them, osteosarcoma. In in uh, uh, humans, osteosarcoma is primarily a, a children's and a young adult disease very, very uh, serious type of cancer. There may be 500 or so each year that are diagnosed. Yeah. But, and and there's been no treatment uh, in the last 60 years, which hadn't, you know, uh, that, that's been advanced uh, over time, except in osteosarcoma for, for, for dogs, there are clinical trials. My question is, are there clinical trials because there are so many dogs diagnosed with it as opposed to the uh, comparatively very few uh, human patients diagnosed with it? Um, I think the original motivation was that um, it was it was common in certain in, in a subset of dog breeds. And so whenever you see a breed or a small group of breeds that are at very high risk for a particular cancer, your geneticist's eyes fly wide open because it's an opportunity to study the genetics of risk or the genetics of susceptibility. And so there are many, many, many breeds that just don't ever get osteosarcoma. And then, as you know, there are breeds, Irish wolfhounds, some of the other long-lived breeds, um, that a long-limbed breeds, excuse me, that are at much, much higher risk. And so that population, those breeds, you know, they, they need to be treated. I mean, it's not a tiny number for the at-risk breeds. You know, whatever the number of total osteosarcoma cases in the dog world is every year, it's actually concentrated in actually a pretty small number of breeds. So if you're an Irish wolfhound owner, you know, this is in the front of your mind. You're thinking about this. So I think that was the original driving um, interest 
But veterinary oncologists are always thinking about what can we do to to help in the human condition? You know, how does this apply to the human condition? Um, and and certainly as a veterinary oncologist, you know, you know um, individuals who've had osteosarcoma touch their family. I mean, we we all know public figures, and but we also you know many know individuals, you know, families that have been touched by osteosarcoma. And just like human medicine, that drives veterinary medicine. You know, we always think back to our own experience. Um, there's the statistical world and then there's our own our own individual experience. And so I think that's been a driving force as well. Exactly as you say, no real successful treatments for human osteosarcoma in the last 60 years unless it's caught very, very early and then amputation and things like that, which aren't satisfactory. Um, And so what can we do as a veterinary community to be helpful? And we have this great opportunity because it's a small number of breeds. So there's clearly genetic components. So once we find those genes and pathways, that's going to suggest therapies and treatment. So we know that's going to be helpful to human condition as well. I know you're not a clinician um, and you can't really comment on specific clinical trials, but there was an interesting story uh, that I read about a clinical trial um, for uh, in osteosarcoma for the canine community um, in which I believe it will, uh, some form of listeria was given to a dog um, and uh, in a, I think it was 2018, the dog's name was Sandy, I believe. And I guess listeria is not something you really want to take, except what happened was that uh, after a period of time, uh, the, the life expectancy was a year. The dog lived four years and may still yeah. even be alive. Yeah. So what uh, the the um, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? But but the um, in the human situation, there was a girl named there is a girl. Uh, an 11 year old named Christy Gomes, who also had osteosarcoma, uh, which can relapse to the lungs, which it most often does. And they gave the same uh, medicine to her. And as far as I know, her cancer disappeared. So is that in a really good example of the canine community helping out uh, our community? So, um, that's a really interesting case. I don't know. I know, I know Christy did well for quite a while. Um, I don't know the, the outcome. It, it, it may be that she eventually did develop resistance and metastases, something in the back of my brain, but I don't know that. So please don't, um, don't take that as gospel. I think that's a great example. Um, You know, here's Listeria is a bacteria. Um, for for those of of your listeners who don't know, it's not something you necessarily would take or want to get. Um, you know, it's not not something that we we think, oh yeah, I want to get that bacteria <laughs> in me um, by by any means. So I don't know all the ins and outs of that particular trial, but I know something people have said to me is maybe the listeria caused an immune response, you know, a sort of blooming of an immune response. Um, and then that helped kill the cancer. Um, and so there was some some kind of um, similarity between 
um, having an immune response to listeria and having an immune response um, to the osteosarcoma cells. Um, maybe other mechanisms, you know, I don't know, I'm not part of the trial, but whatever it is, there's it translated at least somewhat to humans. And maybe that's not surprising because, boy, those diseases are really, really similar. Those are one of those cancers where there's a lot of similarity between human and dog. And so that's a perfect example of where dogs are, you know, leading the charge. And it might be in humans that they don't go on with listeria as a full-fledged treatment, um, but it's given them information, right? It's it's given them, you know, pathways and genes and things to think about as they go forward and develop other theories and other treatments. Um, and in dogs, often the flexibility to undertake clinical trials, it, it takes less time to get them approved than it does in humans. And so that's another advantage that um, exists in the dog world as well. So we need more examples like that. Now, treatment in general for dogs uh, and humans, do they undergo similar type treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, perhaps some sort of immunotherapy, targeted therapy, or is it completely different uh, when you uh, talk about uh, each species? Um, no, no, there are um, tremendous similarities, you know, surgery to try and debulk the tumor, chemotherapy, um, to try and deal with, you know, metastases or cells that have, you know, spread throughout the body. I think the difference um, is that, again, this this cost and insurance issue that, you know, people are going to be limited often as to how much um, they can spend for for treatment in, in the dog world. And, you know, imagine you have three or four or five dogs. I mean, in my lab, I have three different scientists who each have three dogs. And so they're, they're concerned with the health of all three of those um, individuals. And so cost is um, for sure a, um, a factor, but yes, it's the same therapies. Often it's the same chemotherapy drugs um, that are used. Um, Obviously, dosages will be different. Um, sometimes it's a different combination of drugs, but it's it's all part of that same vocabulary for sure. One of the things I found very interesting, and it really doesn't have anything to do with cancer, but um, you talk about ear position in dogs, yeah. Yeah. which holds surprising clues about human health. And in this case, uh, the, um, the uh, problem with deafness. Yeah. Can you uh, kind of relate sure. that? So um, in about 2004, 2005, um, my lab just got really interested in this issue of morphology. You know, these breeds have only been around for a few hundred years. Um, they look really different. I mean, you think about a Great Dane and, and think about a Chihuahua. We're talking about a 40-fold difference in size. They're the same species. They're the same species, same genes, chromosomes organized in the same way, genes lined up in the same way. They're the same species. And so we wanted to, to find those genes. And so we started out, um, we wanted to do everything. We wanted to do coat color. We wanted to do body size. We wanted to do tail curl, ear position, leg length. We want to do all of those. And we started with body size. And, and what we found is that the genes that were responsible for big versus little and intermediate, um, those genes were important in human health as well. So when mutated in humans, you're talking about diabetes, you're talking about metabolic syndrome, you're talking about obesity. And so it's like, 
if you tickle them a little bit in dogs, as breeders have done, you get a particular trait of interest. Um, but when they're mutated in, in a much more draconian way in, in humans, well, then we're seeing some kind of a disease that we really don't want to see. Um, and so we saw that over and over um, with body size, with some of those genes even turning out to be genes important in cancer pathways. So we thought, that's really interesting. Well, let's let's look at other traits. And so I had a series of people in my lab who were interested in the genetics of leg length, looking at the Scottish deerhound um, versus, you know, those, those really short-limbed um, breeds, the, the corgis and the basset hounds and so on. I had um, lots of people interested in things like fur length or baldness or fur color, is your fur curly or is it straight? Um, and one of those things was ear position. I don't know, dog breeders get obsessed with, do your ears stick up or do they flop down? Are your ears big or small? Are they rounded? Are they pointed? And so on. And again, what we saw was um, the same sort of story that the genes that were important in determining position and shape, um, when those genes are mutated in humans in a much more draconian way, um, they're associated with things like deafness. Why? We don't know. We were surprised completely by that result. And that needs a lot more investigation to follow up on and find exact mutations and things like that. But the story is the same no matter what you look at. You can look at the genetics of leg length and you find genes like the estrogen receptor. Okay, we know that's also important in cancer. We know it's important in lots of things in humans. And it's important in determining leg length in, in dogs. And so for us, studying morphology has given us entree into human health and biology. Here are genes we know, we've studied in one context, and now in dogs, we look at them in a different context, and then we link it to human traits and, and human diseases. So quite a number of people in my lab are studying whatever trait you can think of and whatever breed you can think of um, with an interest in drawing those links. So there's really no way to do if you just study humans or you study mice. Well, the, uh, another uh, comparison, I think, uh, would have been that uh, Newfoundlands and St. Bernard's are big dogs, and that gene can translate, I guess, to some extent to obesity in humans. Yeah. So when you when you think about, you know, breeders, I've come to understand are brilliant geneticists, and I didn't appreciate that early in my career. But, you know, they they know what they want to do. I want to, you know, make a breed that's like this breed, but is bigger, is smaller, has longer legs, has shorter legs, has a different face, a different skull, you know, whatever they want to do. And they're very thoughtful about how they go forward in doing that. Sometimes they'll bring in crosses from other breeds. Sometimes they'll, they'll look at litter after litter after litter of puppies and pick out key individuals to, to propagate and to use as breeding stock. I mean, they're very thoughtful about how they do this. But the one thing that's true in every case, the selection is strong. They know what they want to do. Um, they don't want to spend their whole life doing it. Um, they want to be able to do it in a few generations. And so they select very, very strongly. And so when you think about these, what they call giant breeds, like Newfoundlands and St. Bernard's, that um, have a lot of body mass, 
So think about Irish Wolfhounds, Scottish Deerhounds, Great Danes. Um, they're not bulky breeds, as, as we would say. They're skeletally very big, but they're not bulky compared to things like the Mastiff, for instance, which is obviously a very bulky breed in addition to the breeds that you list. It's maybe not so surprising that the genes that have been selected on to create that as part of the breed standard, part of what you have to be to be a successful member of the breed, part of what you have to have to stay in the gene pool to win at dog shows. It's maybe not surprising that those same genes um, are associated with things like obesity or metabolic syndrome in humans. And I have come to spend as much time talking to human geneticists um, as I spend talking to breeders and saying, what what were you trying to accomplish here? You know, why did you cross this dog and that dog? What was the goal? Or people who've been behind the development of new breeds. Um, Because every year the American Kennel Club adds a, a couple of new breeds to their registries. Well, how did you do? What were you thinking about? You know, what? Who were the key players? Show me pictures. Show me pictures of the key dogs, um, and they always have a wonderful story to tell and a very thoughtful story to tell. Now, you have been at the National Institute of Health. I don't know what my computer is doing, but it's making some sort of a noise that I will try to get rid of at some point. Uh, you've been at the National Institute of Health for eighteen years, doing uh, your job, which is. A fascinating career for you, I'm sure. If you can go back to 2004 and relate it to January 5th of 2023, how much more knowledge do you have and does the community that you're working with have than it did when you started? Oh, extraordinary. So 2005, the first single dog had their genome sequence, Boxer, one dog. And that was a big deal. I mean, that was a lot of work. That was a huge big deal. And now there's 4,000 dogs that have been sequenced. We didn't know much about how the breeds related to one another. And now we know all these things. You know, we have studies all over the world to sample dogs. Everywhere from Bali to Indonesia to Africa to the Galapagos. I mean, everywhere we're collecting DNA samples from dogs. And that's helping us understand the the picture um, of of how different breeds formed and, and when they formed. And of course, lots of disease genes have been identified and we've learned a lot about things like um, canine morphology and now canine behavior is really coming to to the fore so we know so much more but it's all tied to the genomics once we could navigate our way around the genome sequence genomes compare genomes uh, once we had the ability to do that and the tools to do that um, you know things really exploded and so I think Part of the next forefront, um, for sure, cancer, more and more people um, are coming to the dog world to study cancer, um, recognizing it's such a devastating human disease that there are some cancers, as you say, we've made very little progress in treating. Others, we've made tremendous progress um, and understanding that dogs offer certain advantages. I think I see a lot of people looking over the fence and talking about behavior because we know different breeds behave differently. And in part, because of everything we've learned studying complex disorders like cancer, it's told us, go the next step, you know, go the next step. Think about the, think about things like finding genes for how herding dogs herd and pointers point. All those things that 30 years ago were what we sat around and talked about as the original motivation for the dog genome project. And so I, I am, 
unbelievably fortunate to be in this space at this time with the colleagues that I have. And I've recruited over the years, amazing trainees have have come to my lab, you know, people with such boldness, such creativity and such vision. Hey, I want to do this. Well, I don't know if that's going to work. I want to do it anyway. Okay, go ahead. Um, And I've been so, so fortunate in, in all of those respects. And, you know, it's very unusual. Once you get to my age and you start thinking about these sorts of things, it's very unusual to start out in your career and say, well, this is what I want to do. Well, this is this is what I want to do for the next 35 years. And then to look back over 30 years and say, that's exactly what I did. I got to do exactly what I wanted to do. I got to work with amazing people. And the information has been really important and really useful for everything from human health to veterinary health to conservation biology to developmental biology to just you know our very fundamental knowledge about understanding who we are. Um, that's rare. There are many people who have gotten to do that. And I am so, so fortunate that I'm one of them um, that has. You uh, appeared on the iconic news magazine show 60 Minutes on November 27th with the equally iconic Anderson Cooper. How did it make you feel to see that what you have accomplished was important enough to have a show like 60 Minutes want to feature you? Um, Yeah, that was certainly a highlight of, of my career. Um, it's important to note there were many people featured for sure in, in that show. Um, what was interesting was the moment in time that that occurred. So right around that time, I was at a meeting that occurs every couple of years of canine and feline genetics. Um, and, you know, there's a couple hundred, 250 people that go to this meeting. And I was looking around the room and I was going, oh, yeah, that person was a postdoc in my lab. 20 years ago, that person was a student of mine 15 years ago. And, you know, they're now on the faculty at, you know, Cornell or wherever, you know, and they're running their own labs and they're very successful and they're doing their thing. And so it was interesting to just sit back and be able to see all that and then see my current lab standing up, giving lots of talks, talking about our our new cancer work or our new behavior work. And so that happened right about the same time. And so Um, as the Anderson Cooper in 60 Minutes um, show did. And so it really made me feel, I think it mostly made me feel proud of my community um, and proud of the work that we'd had the opportunity to do to to put things out there that that people needed, their help. I mean, we're at the National Institutes of Health. That's part of what we're supposed to do, right, is is we're supposed to, um, you know, think of, you know, what are the intellectual resources that, my community needs to move forward. Um, and we've been able to do that. And And I could look around and I could say, yeah, we did that. We did a good job. My trainees did a good job. And it's made a difference for the success of all these different labs. And I think that was reflected in the, in the Anderson Cooper interview as well. It was funny talking to Anderson Cooper because a lot of what he wanted to talk about off camera were his dogs <laughs> because he's a big dog lover. Um, and so... It always comes down to that, you know, no matter who you talk to. I had the privilege once to visit with Ted Kennedy in his Senate office. Um, And he had two Portuguese water dogs that we were collecting DNA from. 
And he was like, yeah, I want to be part of the dog genome project. Now here's this great statesman, right? Um, and he wants to be part of the dog genome project. He wants his Portuguese water dogs, you know, have their DNA in, in our freezer. And with all the things that, that he could talk about, he wanted to talk about his dogs. That's what he really wanted to talk to, to us about, right? And and that that turns out to be true, you know, over and over and over. They're members of our family. Of course, we want to talk about them. We want to talk about our kids. We want to talk about our grandkids. And we want to talk about our dogs. That's how it goes. Well, th- th- that's one of the reasons why this is such a fascinating subject, because so many people in the United States have dogs. And uh, when they find out, uh, about things that perhaps they did not know about. Um, it's certainly an eye-opening experience, just as it was an eye-opening experience for you when you found out the closeness between yeah. humans um, uh, and, uh, and 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 canines. Now, you have published more than 375 papers on uh, uh, the canine genome uh, situation. You've won numerous awards. What are these awards awards mean to you? And is there one or two that you can maybe single out and say, boy, that was one that will always stick with me, even though all of them are important and well-deserved, I'm sure. Oh, thank you so much. Um, So in terms of the awards being elected uh, as a member of the National Academy of Sciences is huge, um, as it is for any scientist in their career, um, that your peers recognize your work and, and put you in that in that category and, and want you um, to be part of that community. Of course, that's huge. Um, Genetic Society of America medal. I mean, that was huge. And for a lot of these, again, I have to emphasize, um, I got the award, but it's really the community that got the award, right? And so the Genetic Society of America medal, yeah, it went to me, but it was a recognition on the part of geneticists in all fields. I mean, everything from aardvarks to zoology, astronomy to zoology, I guess I should say, a recognition that, hey, hello, Dog Genome Project. These people have an interesting story. Um, They're doing cool stuff. Let's pay attention to what's happening there. Um, And so there have been uh, a number of those awards that I feel most definitely are recognition of our community. And that's the most satisfying thing to be able to represent my community um, and to have, you know, when I first, I remember first telling someone I was going to work on the dog genome and this was a Nobel prize winner. I won't say his name, but he was a Nobel prize winner. And I happened to be in a meeting and he was there and he said, Oh, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to work on the dog genome. I'm going to build maps. I'm going to find disease. I'm going to find out why border collies hurt. I'm going to do everything. And he said, but you've been very successful studying DNA architecture, minor groove dimensions, all that stuff I did at Harvard. And he said, why would you do this to a perfectly good career? (laughs) I remember saying, well, because it's fun, because it'd be cool, because nobody else is doing it. I mean, isn't that what science is supposed to be? Answer interesting questions and interesting systems. And he kind of shook his head. And so... um, And then I remember also the day he called me up many years later and said, how come you haven't sampled my dog yet? My dog needs to be part of the dog genome project as well. Um, And so, you know, there are, there are certainly those moments I think that, that stick out and, and really, really tell me that, that I've again been privileged to represent a growing and intellectual and productive um, community and, and the awards are nice, but, you know, that's really what it's all about. 
where can people get in touch with you? Uh, I've used the word fascinating several times during this podcast, and I'll use it again uh, because what you do is just so interesting and so important uh, to both the canine community, the human community uh, in this cancer fight. And I'm sure that uh, any information you could get of where to get in touch with you yeah. would, would, would mean a lot. Okay. So probably the easiest way is to go to the um, Dog Genome Project Facebook page. So you can go to NHGRI, which stands for National Human Genome Research Institute, Dog Genome Project. Um, and you can go to our Facebook page. You can see our studies. You can see recent papers. Um, you might even be able to see some of that Anderson Cooper video. I, I think that might be up there um, as well. Um, but there's really importantly, there's a list of things that we're we're actively um, collecting right now that we're sampling right now. Um, and we're doing a lot of work right now on histiocytic sarcoma. Again, a rare disease, childhood disease, but big one for flat-coated retrievers and Bernese mountain dogs. We're doing a lot um, in bladder cancer um, and we're doing uh, collaborating with an old postdoc of mine with some work in gastric cancer. So it, it lists, you know, some things and breeds that we're looking for. But on the other hand, everybody who's listening to this should go to that page. And the reason is because we really are trying to sample every dog breed in the world. And, you know, people have really interesting breeds. You know, you always hear about the most popular breeds. But um, there's an amazing number of, of rare breeds out there, unusual breeds out there, um, non-American kennel club breeds that people have gotten from various places in the world. And, you know, if you've got an interesting or unique breed, uh, we would love to talk with you. We, we would really love to hear from you. Um, we're doing some behavioral work. And again, go to our webpage and there's a... There's some um, surveys um, available for things like Border Collie owners. So no matter what dog you have, please go um, and look up our Facebook page and you'll find a place um, where you probably want to communicate with us. And we're more than happy to, to talk with you. And the one thing I probably should say, um, one of the most common questions I get is, well, I don't have a purebred dog. And you keep going on and on and on about purebred dogs. What about my mixed breed dog? And so there is most definitely a place for mixed breed dogs in all of these studies as well. So once we know the component breeds of a mixed breed dog, they often become incredibly important in particular studies because they've had recombination events that have taken out. Let's say you look at a dog that's part German Shepherd and part Labrador Retriever and part, I don't know, Chihuahua. Well, they're not all of any of those things. And so if I'm studying a disease that just occurs in the Labrador Retriever, well, two thirds of their genome is not Labrador Retriever, depending on the breed structure half or whatever it's going to be. And so it allows me to ignore a big chunk of the genome and just focus in. It, it, it solves a statistical problem for us. So even if you have a mixed breed dog, um, if your dog is part, any of the things we're studying, Scottish Terriers or Shelties or Border Collies or Chows or Belgian breeds or you know all those things, um, please contact us as well. And we'd be happy to hear from you. Well, I think there were 350 different uh, dog breeds, if I read that correctly. Yeah. And and for what you're telling me, there's a lot of work that you're doing 
on so many different fronts. Yeah. So I get. I, I guess that um, uh, you're going to you and your staff are going to be very very busy for a very long time. To the uh, uh, thankfulness that that we should all share with you for, for doing all this great work. And as we come to the end of the podcast, um, I, I'm I'm so happy that that a friend of mine saw the interview uh, with you and immediately contacted me and said, this is someone you need to have on your show. And I, I said, and I completely agreed then. And I completely agree even more. Oh, thank now. you. Oh, uh, thank you. And on behalf of our whole community. Thank you. Well, it was, uh, yeah, just thank you so much for taking the time to, to, to give us as, as I like to use the word once in a while uh, on, on something uh, that uh, is, is so meaning, meaningful, a tutorial really on something that comparatively very few people ever thought about or even know about, even though you might be a dog lover uh, or have a dog uh, to know that we are kind of similar in a lot of ways. Man's best friend, not, not just in the family, but um, in our DNA. Without a doubt. And I I use the term man's best friend right away. The podcast that will always be the case. And hopefully, uh, years from now, the cancer problem with dogs and with humans will be lessened because of the work that you've started. And uh, my guess is that will be the case. So that's the goal. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. And I want to wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dr. Ostrander. And I hope that you found her information to be both important and useful. I think it is very apropos that the canine community and the human community can help each other in ways that perhaps we did not know about. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Thursday when I will speak to Jackie Walker, who is the executive director of Lucy's Love Bus, a nonprofit that focuses on integrative therapies to help cancer patients and their families.